<clears throat> it's Easter morning, and there are two billion of us celebrating this day in worship in all 195 countries, in dozens of languages and even more dialects. It's the day Christians celebrate the radical reality. It's almost foolish to believe. It's true. But Jesus was dead and was raised from the dead. It is the very foundation of our faith. And yet, as glorious as this day is, and y'all, this is an amazingly glorious day right now, just in case, just today. Um, we all come to this day differently. Some of you have been doing this for a long time. Some of you can't remember the last time you did. Some of you grew up with um, this being filled as a, as a high and holy holiday, which included seersucker. Others today is a day just to dress up, egg hunts and candy. And you can thank us later for feeding your children lots of sugar before the service. Sometimes it's just a great time to be with friends and family. And others don't exactly know how to fit in. Because standing in the beauty and brightness of a day like this creates dark shadows. And Redeemer, we've been through some dark times. The pain, the loss, the memories, the things we wish wouldn't happen. This morning I'm going to start with a story of a, a vow I made 29 years ago. I told the story last year. I'll tell it next year because I made that vow. So indulge me. 29 years ago, my sister and I walked into a church with my six-month-old nephew in arm. She was a heroic single mother like all single mothers are. She was working a, a ton of hours. She was managing a structure in the mall, if you remember that store, retail, rearing her son, and venturing back to church for the first time in around a decade. I was on spring break from college and was with her because she couldn't get off of work and be with family, and I, my folks were splitting up, and so I just went down to see her. We walked into the church and kind of timidly took our seat in the pews, and then the minister of the gospel got up and he said these words. If you're one of those people who only come in on Easter and Christmas, it means nothing. You might as well not even be here. And tears fell and shame poured over us. And even though no one was looking at us, looking at us, we knew we were isolated and being looked at and judged. I wanted to get up and scream, but on that day, even though at that point I thought I was going to be a, liar, a lawyer or a psychiatrist, with no clue I'd be a pastor, I said to myself, God, if you ever let me speak on Easter Sunday, I promise I will declare to the room just the opposite. And so here it goes. Church family, family, friends, strangers, crying babies, you are welcome. As a minister, in the name of the resurrected Jesus, you are welcome here. Visitors, especially those in church for the first time or the first time in years, Easter and Christmas, folks, you are welcome here. You might be scared to come to a place like this and be judged. Or for those of you who feel alone or isolated because you've been shamed in the name of Jesus by someone like me, you are welcome here. And for those of you who only experience their relationship or spirituality with God as negative, that your failure is too much, you're too abnormal, your sin is too great, too whatever, to be in a place like this, you are welcome here. 
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Because here is what is true. You can come in these doors anytime you want. If we don't see you till next Easter, you'll be welcome here next Easter. I don't care if this is your first Christian worship service or your last Christian worship service. You are welcome here. And you are not alone. The world and this church is filled with people of despair and doubt who are not sure where they fit at times. Welcome to the fellowship of the broken who believe in the strong and tender and powerful mercy of the resurrected Christ. So I'm going to read the scriptures, um, not separately, but along the way today. So we'll turn to them. They're in your bulletin. We're in John 21. This is after the resurrection. And uh, this is a story that is basically uh, a story between Jesus and a guy named Simon Peter, or Peter, or Simon, or Simon, son of John. So just so you know. The last time they talked directly, Peter wept bitterly, full of shame. It was at Jesus' trial. Jesus was tried before he was um, uh, crucified. And Peter had utterly declared with with his full Peter-like confidence that he would stand with Jesus in life and death. And Jesus responded in a very peculiar and difficult way in which his confidence, although it didn't crumble, would... He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cocks crow in the morning. And Peter protested in a very Peter way. I will never fall away. I will never disown you, Jesus. All these other guys might disown you, but I am not going to disown you. And while Jesus was standing before the high priest or around a charcoal fire with a bunch of people around, and Jesus was being mocked and punched and spit on and blindfolded, A little girl came up to Peter and said, aren't you with him? And he denied, I'm not with him. And then two other times, and then the cock crowed. And that's when Peter wept bitterly. I wonder if this is why Peter returned to his old job as a fisherman. He's been fishing all night before this passage. He's caught nothing. Jesus is first unknown to his disciples and tells them to set the net on the other side. They haul in a load that has them almost stuck out there. John recognizes him and says so, and Peter realizes it's Jesus and jumps out of the boat and starts sloshing towards the shore to go see Jesus. And yet he's sloshing in a way that is both exuberant and frightened and anxious and unsure and hopeful all at the same time. 21, 9 through 14, the beginning of your passage says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have, that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Just in case you're wondering if the Bible is worried about accuracy. And although there were so many The net was not torn, i.e. miracle. Jesus said to them, think about this. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And now, 
John gives us a little, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I just want to park here for a good bit. Peter is likely home fishing again because he feels like a failed disciple. He couldn't cut it. And now he's not even being a very good fisherman, which he was good at. So his denial, betraying Jesus, his friend in his friend's greatest time of need, he's like, Jesus is risen, but I'm a flop. Can you imagine what every morning felt like to him when the rooster crowed? Did his body twitch? Did he lower his head or dry his tearing eyes? Every morning, his ears heard the sound of his failure and betrayal. So he's back at his old job. At least he's good at that, usually. More shame, more failure. So now he's on the shore with Jesus, who made him breakfast, and the other disciples. Fish and bread. A few details that are really important here. The first is the charcoal fire. Charcoal fire, this word, is only used one other time in all of the New Testament. And that's when Peter betrayed him and was warming himself around the charcoal fire. The meal. Look, y'all, an invitation to a meal is a big deal now? It was everything in the ancient Near East. They had eaten with Jesus a hundred times, and now he prepares a meal for them. The words of institution also. The language he uses, he took the bread and gave it to them. Last time they heard those words was just before Jesus was arrested at the Last Supper. And then this enormous catch that sets it all, these 153 fish without a torn net, a miracle of provision, a setting the scene amid generosity and the abundance of God and his mercy. Just think about the kindness and the power of Jesus to orchestrate this event. This is amazing. If the bodies, if our bodies keep the score of our shame and trauma and sin, and they do, if they feel, touch, and taste uh, um, of the pain that resides in, um, in some mysterious way in our bodies, which they do, oh, I'm sorry, sweetie, it's okay, oh, which they do, <laughs> Really, they do. <laughs> then think about what Jesus is doing here. What, this is what psychiatrists call a, a safe therapeutic environment. It's what it is. He's helping Peter in particular experience the past in a different way, in a renewed safe place of love and generosity. Jesus has them in group therapy, which is why nobody's talking, because nobody wants to talk in group therapy. <laughs> They're all sitting in there, looking around, not even daring to say who he was when they all knew he wa who he was. They don't even want to acknowledge it. I, they don't even dare to acknowledge it. I don't know. I mean, just awkward to the hilt, right? That's what's going on. But purposely awkward because Jesus orchestrates this moment. Jen Sanders shared a, a great description of this moment written by uh, a psychiatrist, Dr. Kurt Thompson. He writes um, as if Jesus were saying the words to Peter. Jesus says, we both know that we both know what you did. Everyone around the fire knows what you did. And then Jesus lets that awkward moment linger 
all the way through breakfast? Like, I would love to know. When I get to Gloria, I am asking, okay, what, who said what, or did any of y'all say anything? So with this, we both know that we both know what you did. What are Jesus' options here? What do you expect for him to say? However you expect for him to say, if you haven't heard this before, is your envision of what God is like. How does the risen Jesus respond to Peter's greatest sin and certainly one of Jesus' greatest hurts? 21.15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, which is his old name, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, again, if you're hearing this for the first time, and even if you're hearing it for the 30th time, it's a really interesting question. Because it could have been like, Peter, you want to talk about it? Peter, are, are you sorrowful? Peter, why are you a fisherman again? Peter, I forgive you. Peter, I love you. But not, do you love me more than these other disciples around me? That's a strange question. And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Not sure I love you more than all these guys, but I, you know I love you. And Jesus responds, feed my lambs. Such a strange interaction. And it gets stranger still because it comes to him a second time, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Almost exact same question, exactly the same answer, and almost the exact same response from Jesus. Weirder still, Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of David, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. <clears throat> I love this story. What is your greatest shame? Your greatest failure? Your worst act? Or your last shame? Your last failure? Or your last regretful act? The ones you can't get over. What if Jesus responds, do you love me? And what if you can respond, I do, I really do. I know I really, really, really messed up, but I really do love you. What goes on there? Jesus is saying, you may not be over it, but I got over it. I've never not loved you. And I never loved you because I thought you were going to do everything right all the time. In fact, I've loved you more knowing you were not the person that was going to do right all the time. That's why I came to rescue that you. That is what the cross and the resurrection are all about. I'm not worried about whether I love you. I'm asking if you love me. See, you think that your sin has disqualified you. I don't. In fact, he goes on this really weird other thing about how Peter's going to die in the last verse. And then his last words to him are, follow me. He's basically saying, I want you on my squad. Do you want to be here? 
do you want me? Now, it's not like an unrequited love where Jesus is desperate. You know, this is not a teenage saga. He's, he's asking because he's inviting Peter to breathe in the very resurrection power to have dignity, life, and agency, and power, and courage, even though he's a desperate sinner. That's what he's doing. It's for Peter to put on his lips, I love you. Kurt Thompson continues in writing about this passage, and he's using, again, as if Jesus were saying it, Peter, you're tempted to remain in your shame, and so return to fishing for fish. I want none of that. I want you fishing for men and women. I have work for you to do, and do in the very face of the shame you feel. You will watch it be transformed into something so beautiful that it will become unrecognizable to you. It will become confidence and comfort, and you will become confidence and comfort to others. That's amazing. Three betrayals, three questions, three answers fit all together. This is one of the greatest stories in all of the written word. Peter is transformed by grace, forgiven of his greatest sin, healed of his greatest wound, restored to his greatest friendship, and recommissioned into his greatest calling. Amazing. That's resurrection power. It takes all of our guilt and our shame and transforms it into a witness of God's goodness to us and the world, to his incredible love, his mercy. Easter Sunday is for fools and weaklings and betrayers and cowards, for the shamed and the guilt-ridden. The resurrection flips the script. It flips the script from shame to glory, from anxiety to peace, from rebellion against to friendship with God, from incapacitating despair to hope. Hope in the work of God, in you, and your neighbor, and the world. All of this because of the resurrection. That's why it's everything. It's because the resurrection <clears throat> flips the ultimate script from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ Jesus. And being alive in Christ Jesus means that we participate in the love of the triune God, the love they have for each other, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that is a glorious life. So let me conclude as clearly as I can. If you follow Jesus, the risen Lord, here is what is true. Your failure will never be fatal or final. Because he's loved you and he loves you, those, that failure will be fuel for a life adorned with his grace and his beauty and power. And one day, he will wipe every tear from your eye. And you will Realize how much you love him too. And it'll probably be over breakfast. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the risen Lord. And we thank you that you are the risen Lord. And we pray that you'd help us get a grasp of this. And all our shame and all our sorrow and all our sin. 
and all the folly that we live in and we pursue when we run from you. But when we run to you, and would you convince us by the miraculous power of your love to truly admit, yeah, we really do love you. We pray in your name. Amen.